Mark chapter 11, verse 1 to 33. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell him, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, It is not written, my house, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Jesus said, 
neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Shall we pray? <clears throat> Father, we want to thank you for your word and we thank you for this um, um, amazing passage of scripture that we're looking at this morning. We pray that you'd give us fresh insights and that you would challenge uh, the uh, uh, sinfulness of our hearts and uh, warm us towards Jesus. Father, that we would be people who uh, live our lives honouring him. We pray also for the children in Sunday school and uh, as they're taught, we pray that the seed of the gospel would be firmly implanted in their hearts. And we ask these things now in the precious name of Jesus our Saviour. Amen. Well, a very Greek friend of mine who has the very Greek name of Hercules, how's that, eh, was uh, expressing his frustrations uh, this week. He said that his problem was that it's just so hard in Australia to get a good fig. Uh, last week, <clears throat> the Sydney uh, markets, one kilo of figs, $49.99. 50 bucks a kilo for figs. And of course in the Mediterranean and the Middle East, figs have been on the menu since forever. I mean, uh, you know, if, you're, if, you're, if your name is as Greek as Hercules and you're feeling peckish, what do you need? You need a, a fig. You need a fig. So one day Jesus is walking along and he's feeling a bit hungry and he sees a fig tree uh, in front of him and he heads towards the fig tree. It's in the distance. But there's a problem. When he gets close to the fig tree, uh, he discovers that uh, the, the uh, tree has no figs. And so he curses the fig tree and uh, the, uh, the next day... It's dead. That's a strange story, isn't it? That's a weird story. Uh, it's a story which some people just, quite frankly, don't know what to do with it. Uh, some church people find it a rather uncomfortable story because uh, they think of Jesus as being the, the great moral uh, man, the great moral leader who came to teach us how we should live. But here he is. He's feeling hungry, he finds a tree without figs and in an outburst of frustration and anger, uh, he zaps the poor fig tree. What, 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 what do they make of that? Some people have said, well, actually, probably it's not really supposed to be in the Bible, that um, someone's kind of fudged it and added that in later on. Um, and other people who don't even pretend to be Christians... Uh, they say, well, there you go. Uh, Jesus is not the great moral mountain that he's made out to be. He gets angry too and he lashes out in frustration. There was a guy in the middle of the last century called Bertrand Russell who was a popular philosopher and he wrote a book called Why I'm Not a Christian and this is one of the reasons why I said I'm not a Christian. You can't follow Jesus. You don't have to follow Jesus because he's simply not always moral. What do you make of the story of the fig tree? Why did Jesus curse the fig tree? Uh, was it an unjustifiable outburst of anger? Uh, is it just a made-up story? Or is there something more to it? Well, you probably know which direction we're going to head uh, with this particular passage of Scripture. 
I want to suggest that there's something a lot more to it than that. Um, Back in March, we finished what was a 14-week series on the Gospel of Mark, where we uh, worked our way from Mark chapter 1 through to the end of Mark chapter 10. And the reason that we stopped at Mark 10 uh, was because that's a... That's a, a, a section in Mark's Gospel in its own right. From Mark 1 to Mark 10, Mark covers the ministry and the teaching of Jesus as he travelled around Galilee and the countryside of Judea. But uh, if you'd like to open up your Bibles now at Mark chapter 11, things from here on are different because uh, from here to the end of Mark's Gospel... Jesus is now uh, ministering in the very centre of Jewish life in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem wasn't just the main city, it was also the centre of the spiritual life of the Jews. And on the calendar of Jerusalem, there was no more important time of the year than the Passover, uh, when hundreds of thousands of people would literally stream into Jerusalem in order to worship God at the temple. Now, in verses 1 through to 11 of of chapter 11, Jesus is one of those people. Uh, Jesus and his disciples are staying in a little village just outside, about three k's outside of Jerusalem. Uh, It's called Bethany. And what we see here, though, is that when Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem. He didn't do so in the ordinary way, did he? He came into the city of Jerusalem sitting on the back of a, of a colt, a young male donkey. Uh, that was an unusual thing to do. Um, and in verses 2 through to 8, Mark goes into detail explaining the arrangements that Jesus had to make with his disciples in order for them to obtain, to specially obtain, this colt, so that when he entered into Jerusalem, he would do so on the back of a colt. And then in verses 8 through to 10, if you care to look at that, we see that the locals rolled out the red carpet for Jesus. That uh, when they saw him coming, that uh, people threw their clothes and they threw palm branches on the road in front of him so that uh, the, the donkey would walk over those things. And they shouted out praises to him as well. So the question I want to ask is why? Why was it that Jesus had to come into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey? Why was it that the people threw their clothes and the palm branches in front of the donkey and why was it that they shouted praises to Jesus? Now, I want us just to hold that thought in midair for a few moments and we'll Hopefully all will come together uh, by the end of the talk. Because after returning to to Bethany, in verse 12, Jesus came back to Jerusalem the next day. Now, imagine Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. I think it's busy in Port Macquarie today with all the visitors. Nothing like Jerusalem. They literally had hundreds of thousands of people would come. And it was bustling with crowds of people who've come to offer up animal sacrifices at the temple. Uh, Most of the people have travelled a long distance to get there. 
uh, not just from the countryside of Judea, not just from the cities of Galilee, but faithful Jews had travelled from all over the Middle East and all over Asia Minor and all over uh, the Mediterranean in order to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. And it was simply not practical for people to bring their animal sacrifices all the way with them from home to Jerusalem. And so instead, when they got to Jerusalem, uh, you would actually buy your animals. You would buy the birds that you would sacrifice. And people also had to exchange money. I'll tell you why that's the case. At the temple, people could pay what was called the annual temple tax. It finds its origin back in Exodus chapter 30, when the Jews were required to give a half shekel offering once a year at the temple. Now, as you know, back then in Exodus, they didn't actually have coins, uh, a, a half shekel wasn't a coin, a half shekel was a weight of silver and they had to give that, that weight of silver to the temple every year. By the time of Jesus, of course, they did have coins and the coin which was closest in weight to the, the old uh, Jewish half shekel weight uh, and was also uh, had a lot of silver content in it, 94% silver, uh, was what they called the Tyrian shekel, uh, a shekel that uh, was named after the city of Tyre, which is in Phoenicia. And so uh, in Jerusalem, people could come with all of their coins from wherever they'd come from, their Roman coins and so on, and they could exchange their coins at the money changer for a Tyrian shekel, which they could then pop into the box at the temple and pay their annual temple tax. There are other problems with the Tyrian shekel. Uh, one of the main ones I can see was that the, on the on Tyrian the shekel there's an image of a Phoenician god, a false god, and that's another story as to the problems involved in putting that into the temple in Jerusalem, but uh, uh, not for today. What you can see here, and what I'm trying to explain, is that there was a need to have a market in Jerusalem. And in fact, there, were, there was a market in Jerusalem. There were actually four markets in Jerusalem and they were set up on the Mount of Olives. But when you have a look at verses 15 through to 19, Jesus has returned back to Jerusalem on this second day and when he turns up at the temple, what is it that he found at the temple? What was there in the, in the temple? What did he see there? What did he find in the temple? He found a, a market. A market. You see, what's happened is that the marketplace is now in the temple grounds. Now, the reason for that was that there was a problem. The problem was that the, that the four markets that were uh, operating uh, on the Mount of Olives, they were run by the local council, by the Sanhedrin. But the Jewish high priest named Caiaphas in the year 30 AD, he decided, he realised that there was money to be made and he wanted his slice of the action. And so what he did was he set up an alternative, a competitive 
marketplace, and he did so on the territory that he had control over. He did so in the temple. Right? That's what's going on here. Now imagine the temple. Just try to picture it. In the middle of the temple, you've got the, the Holy of Holies. And then outwards from that, you've got the court of the men. Outwards from that, you've got the court of the women. And then on the outer court, the wide open court, is the court of the Gentiles. The place where non-Jews, the place where Gentiles, who have turned away from their false gods, who've decided that the God of Israel is the true God, can actually come to the temple and pray to the true God, the God of the Bible. It's a bit hard to pray, though, when the court of the Gentiles is turned into an, a livestock yard. It's a bit hard to pray when the court of the Gentiles it looks more like an oriental bazaar with all of the things that you could buy for your ceremonies, your wine and your oil and your salt and your birds and you can, you can even change your cash at the same time. And who... Who in his greed has made it hard for the Gentiles to pray? Well, it's the senior spiritual leader, the high priest. Can you see why Jesus was angry? Uh, have a look in verse 15. Verse 15, it tells us that on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, for the Gentiles as well? So that's what's going on there. Now, overturning tables, uh, driving people out, standing in the way and not allowing them to pass their merchandise through the court, didn't go down all that well with the temple authorities and the religious leaders. And so in verse 18, we're told that the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they began to look for a way to kill Jesus. Now, you have to put yourself into their shoes. Arresting Jesus was always going to be a bit tricky uh, because of the popularity that he had with the crowds. You see there, it's, we're told that the people themselves were actually, they were like spellbound. They were, they were amazed at the teaching of Jesus. Just how tricky it was to, to uh, have Jesus arrested, we can see in verses 27 through to 33, if you care to have a look at that section. Uh, let me take you through it. It's another day. Jesus is back in, the, in Jerusalem. He's walking around the temple courts when a coalition of leaders, religious and civil, challenged his authority. Now look at verse 28. Verse 28, they say to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Now, and they say, who gave you authority to do this? Jesus unnerves them. You know, I used to have a friend who every time I'd ask him a question, he'd answer by asking me a question. He'd always say, I'd ask him a question, and he'd say, why do you ask? After a while, I got 
really unnerved and stop asking him any more questions. And you see, this, what Jesus does here is he doesn't answer their question. Instead, he puts them on the back foot by asking them a question. Verse 29, Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Now here comes the question. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. Now, actually, <clears throat> he hasn't just put them on the back foot. He's actually put them into a corner. It's a question about John the Baptist and whether he's baptising people, whether that was something which came from God, i.e. a prophet, or is it just something which he was doing of his own authority, just a man? And here's their dilemma. If they say, well, yes, John's baptism was from heaven, then they've got a few questions to answer, don't they? Like, for example, well, okay, well, why didn't you obey what John said? Uh, why didn't you uh, repent? And particularly, why didn't you believe what John said about Jesus. So they can't say that, well, his baptism was from heaven, but on the other hand, they can't say that his baptism was from men either because the crowds absolutely adored John. They believed that John was a prophet from God and so they're in a corner. And in verse 33, how did they answer? Well, how would a coward answer? They just say, we don't know. We've got no idea. Don't ask us. Now, why did Jesus raise the issue of John the Baptist? I think it's more than just to put them into a corner. I think there's more to it than that. Uh, when John the Baptist came in the desert preaching and baptising, in Luke chapter 3, verse 6, uh, Luke tells us what his message was. His message was this. His message was, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You got that? John's message was produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, when Jesus uh, rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, it wasn't because he was too tired to walk. Uh, no, it was, a, it was a message. It was a symbol in that. It was to fulfil prophecy. Um, perhaps we can just go back to the second last book of the Old Testament for a moment, if you keep a bookmark in Mark chapter 10. Back to Zechariah, uh, Zechariah chapter 9, which you'll find on page 672 in your Red Pew Bibles there. Now, Zechariah is written, um, it's about 500 years earlier. The Persians have taken over the Babylonians so God's people of Israel under Cyrus are now free to return to the land, to, uh, uh, to Israel. And Zechariah speaks into that context and he prophesies about the future of the coming of the kingdom of God. Have a look at verse, eight, verse 9. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. He, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Rivers normally the Euphrates River in Babylon to the ends of the earth. So this is the picture of the kingdom of God that Israel could expect would be, uh, they would be central to in its future. And the question is this, how would they know when God's great kingdom would come? How would they know when God's king had arrived in Jerusalem? They would know because he would come riding on the back of a donkey, on the back of a colt, a young male donkey. I think that's why Jesus went to all the trouble of organising a donkey on that day as he rode into Jerusalem. Now, we don't know what was on the minds of the crowd as they laid down their clothes and their palm branches before Jesus. Uh, some say that that was something which they did for others as well. Uh, we can't be exact, but Mark records it for a reason. And I think it's because we do know what was on their lips. Go back to Mark 11. In Mark 11, verse 9, those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, which means save. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, however they understood that, what they were saying was right. Because God, in the person of his son, had arrived. God's long-awaited king of Zechariah chapter 9 had come. God was now visiting his people in Jerusalem with its temple, with its priests, with its sacrifices, with its rituals. And when God visits his temple... What does God have the right to expect to find? How about fruit? How about the fruit of, that John the Baptist talked about, the fruit of repentance? How about the fruit of lives that are lived, trusting, loving, serving, obeying, honouring God? But instead, what does he find? A marketplace run by greedy profiteers in the centre of the temple. The spiritual leaders who, instead of feeding God's people with God's word, are robbing them. The spiritual leaders who, instead of being a, a light to the Gentiles, are preventing Gentiles from actually praying to God. just like the fig tree, just like the fig tree. You see, the leaves on a fig tree disguise the fact that it has no fruit. And in the same way, religion can be like that. You can have magnificent buildings. You can have ornate decorations. You can have complex ceremonies and rituals and titles and but reject God's son and reject his gospel. There's an interesting little section in there that 
spend a couple of moments on from verses 20 to 25, where <coughs> verse 22 rather, where they've seen the withered fig tree and Jesus says, have faith in God. He says, I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. And therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in a prayer, believe that you have received it and will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. You kind of wonder, what that, that's great teaching. What's it doing there, though? And the other thing you wonder about, is this a blank check? Is Jesus saying, it doesn't matter what you pray for, whatever you pray for, God will do it because you've prayed for it. I don't think that's the case. I don't think God ever gives us a blank check. And uh, the way I would understand this section in its context is that uh, it's about the coming of the kingdom. It says, uh, you know, whoever says to this mountain, go and throw yourself in the sea. People, someone say, well, what's the mountain in your life? Is it that, you know, that uh, difficult sin or that difficult person or whatever? But the, this mountain, remember, there, the mountain that was there was the Mount of Olives. And back in Zechariah, in Zechariah's prophecies about the coming of the kingdom, in Zechariah chapter 14, Zechariah says that after the king has come, then one of the next things on God's timetable is judgment. And in Zechariah chapter 14, there's a, an apocalyptic description of judgment taking place in Jerusalem and God provides a way out. God provides salvation by splitting the Mount of Olives in two and creating a valley by which those who are faithful can actually flee and flee the coming wrath. I think Jesus is that way. Jesus, by his death on the cross, is the escape route. And so when it says to pray and to forgive, well, friends, the kingdom of God is all about forgiveness. It's about us being forgiven by God through the salvation that's come from him who is Hosanna and that means that we're going to be forgiving one another. It's a different ballgame, isn't it? Totally different from the religious leaders who are preventing Gentiles from praying, who are making money and who are rejecting God the Son. Now, Jesus wraps up this whole kind of section by telling the leaders a story. We didn't read it. It's in chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. And it's about a man who planted a vineyard. And uh, he then went and leased out the vineyard to some tenant farmers. You know this story? Okay. But every year he would take one of his servants to the tenant farmers to, at harvest time to collect the rent, which would be fruit the fruit from the harvest. And every year when a servant came, the tenants uh, would either bash him up or they'd kill him. Uh, and uh, you, know, you can imagine people on the edge of their seats, figuratively, you know, listening to what they're all ears, listening to what Jesus is saying. And you can imagine the religious leaders, the teachers of the law and, and the chief priests, and they're kind of thinking... You know, where is this heading? Where is he going with this? What's the punchline? And the punchline happens in verse 6. 
because in verse 6, Jesus says that uh, eventually the farmer ran out of servants to send. So he says, well, I'll send my son. And what did they do when the son came to collect fruit? They killed him and disposed of his body. The religious leaders were outraged. They were outraged because they understood what he was saying. They understood that the, that the, uh, the landowner is God. They understood that the servants have been the prophets that God has been sending for centuries. They understood that the tenant farmers were them. How dare he suggest that they would kill God's son? So what did they do? They started making plans to kill God's son. That's the great irony, that in their very actions, because of the sinfulness of their hearts, they fulfilled the parable that Jesus was speaking against them. You see, friends, the fig tree that Jesus saw that day was real. Uh, it's not a made-up story. It's not something that someone's added later on. It was real. It had leaves, but it had no fruit because it was a symbol of Jerusalem. It was a symbol of religion without faith. The curse was also real. The withered tree stands as a warning about judgment. The withered tree stands as a warning that God is not impressed by religion. The withered tree stands as a warning that God wants to see fruit in our lives. The fruit that comes from hearts that know Hosanna, that know the one who is the Saviour, who know the one who has cleared the pathway, who's broken the mountain, has created the escape route so that we can be saved from God's judgment, so that we can be forgiven and live lives. As Paul prays to the Colossians, he says, I pray that you would live lives that are worthy of the Lord bearing fruit in every good deeds. The fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5 of love and joy and peace and self-control, the fruit that comes from trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout Mark's Gospel so far, there has been tension between Jesus and the religious establishment. As Jesus has healed the sick, as he has controlled the weather, as he has driven out demons as he has exposed the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. But that was in the countryside of Judea and the cities of Galilee. Now he's on their turf in Jerusalem and the crowds are watching and what's been simmering under the surface is now going to boil, boil over as it leads to Jesus eventually going to the cross and dying. Where on the cross, he became the withered tree for us as he bore the curse so that we might actually start to bear fruit in our lives for him. Let's pray. <clears throat>
Father, we thank you for Jesus. Uh, we thank you, Father God, that he did come to Jerusalem, that he did grieve over what he saw. We thank you, Father God, that in the irony of how you work, that you use the sinfulness of these who had rejected Jesus to in fact bring about your good purpose of his death on the cross for our sakes. Father, we pray that we would be people who know Hosanna, who know what it is to be saved. We pray that we would be people who, uh, uh, who bear fruit in our lives, uh, the fruit that uh, comes from loving you and serving you as our Lord and our Master. Father, cut away the sin in our hearts that loves religion and ritual and uh, does so devoid of true faith in you. Humble us, we pray, and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.